Good morning. Our senior pastor, Calvin, is at a sister church in Athens this morning, and it is a joy and a privilege that I get to be with you this morning, literally preaching Christ crucified. Uh, what a joy, what an honor. We have been going through the Gospel of Luke for over a year now, and providentially we come to starting to get to the end of the Gospel, and today we are looking at Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. If you would turn there, and when you find it, if you would stand to your feet, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed with him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to, Je but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray one more time. Father, I ask that you would take your word now and plant it deep in our hearts. Open blind eyes, open deaf ears. And if it be your will, I pray that there might be some today who could, with the dying thief, rejoice to see uh, the Savior who's dying for them. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is perhaps a familiar passage. Indeed, it is what uh, Christianity hangs on. It's part of it. I would include the resurrection and the ascension with that as well. But Christ crucified is everything. It is our faith. This is a sacred book. The Gospels 
are some of the most important pages in this book and this passage. Indeed, the sentence, they crucified him, is one of the most important sentences in the world. And what you do with this truth is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. But let's start in verse 26 with Act 1, setting the scene. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Sometimes we can take for granted because of our distance geographically on the other side of the world and our distance through time, uh, some of these little historical details. But it's details like this, the name of a man and where he was from, that help us see these testimonies as trustworthy. This is history that the apostle is recording for us. Mark's gospel account mentions two sons of Simon from Cyrene. And so I don't want to spend too long on something that we don't know for sure, but we can pretty reasonably speculate that these men were believers. The fact that it named Simon and his two sons in Mark, it seems that the church would know who these people were. And what a thought if, because he's from out of town, Cyrene was in North Africa, He's probably coming into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. What if this is his introduction to the Savior? Isn't this just a picture of the Christian experience? That as, sometimes as we learn of Jesus, it's only after we realize that we were somehow complicit in his death. Again, it would be my prayer that perhaps for some of you this morning, you might have a similar experience to Simon of Cyrene, if that indeed was his experience. But what else is going on in this scene? We see that they laid the crossbar on him uh, because Jesus is probably very physically weak at this point. The night before, he has spent it in the garden in agony. Luke recorded that he was sweating drops of blood. This has been a rough night to say the least. Uh, I am no good the next day after a poor night's sleep. This is like not just a poor night's sleep, but the worst night probably any person has experienced in history. That was the night before, going before the council, the Sanhedrin, being wrongfully accused before political courts, Pilate, Herod. He's just been beaten and mocked and scourged. He's had a crown of thorns beaten into his head. And now he is asked to walk a pretty good distance from the center of Jerusalem to this hill carrying a cross. And it says there's a great multitude of people. If you're the Roman soldiers, you do not want Jesus falling out in the middle of the crowded streets of Jerusalem right here, right now. So they grab a guy and they're like, you, you need to carry this because we need to get out of this place. The streets of Jerusalem are not like the avenues of New York City. If you've ever been, the walls and the markets are close together. Luke just says a great multitude. That's perhaps because of the layout of Jerusalem. It's hard to know how many people it was. 
But I think it's interesting that there are other places in the Gospels where there are numbers of people listed. He feeds the 5,000 or the 4,000. And the fact that Luke can only say, it was a great multitude, indicates that there were a lot of people around. And everyone knows what's going on. Later in chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, before Jesus has revealed himself to uh, some of the disciples, Cleopas says, are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on this weekend? Jesus is a high-profile man. Tensions are high. Emotions are on display. And the people, it's not just his followers. Verse 28, it says, uh, or excuse me, verse 27 mentioned that there were women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem. This contrasts later in verse 55 with the women from Galilee who had followed Jesus here. These are locals, and Jesus corrects them in their weeping. Their their lamenting is misguided. They have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So why, why would these people who aren't maybe Christ's followers weeping? Well, again, let's set the scene. We are in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. So even if you're not in league with the religious leaders who are really the ones leading the animosity against Jesus, you still are a Jew, and you know that this man is kind of a high-profile Jew, and you're seeing one of your own being led away to be executed by Roman soldiers. Our, our nationality, it means a lot to us. The outpouring of emotion we've seen in the UK this weekend, uh, even thinking today of it being the anniversary of 9-11, these things add to the emotional tension in the air. You can feel it. So they see one of their own being led away to be executed. But Jesus corrects them and says, hold on, don't weep for me if you think that there's just something political going on here. Jesus is a compassionate and good savior to the end. He's walking to Calvary and he has a compassion for the lost sheep of Israel. He speaks in a way that is uh, sounds very prophetic because there are some very similar verses in Isaiah 2 and Hosea 10 and even in Revelation 6 where people who have rejected God and are now facing the judgment of the holy God ask the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. This is not an analogy like sometimes we read in the Psalms of of Christ or of, of God being our hiding place, hide me in, in the rock, being a, a good metaphor. This is saying, no, I want the mountains to crush me. I want the hills to crush me because that death would be more bearable than what I am enduring. And there's a historical reality that Jesus knows that Roman occupied Jerusalem, it's not going to be this way for much longer. And as Israel has finally rejected the Messiah, their own Messiah, 
there is coming a judgment from God against them. Jerusalem will be destroyed not many years after this. But for further application coming to us even today, if you today reject the Messiah, there is coming a death that is worse than physical death. That should be very sobering for us. However, my aim today is not to scare you into the kingdom, but for you to soberly see the goodness and the compassion of the Savior, who to the very end was seeking and saving the lost. And if he was doing that in his earthly ministry, in his life pre-resurrection, how much more is he continuing to do that today? It is good that you are here today hearing this good news. Last week, Pastor Calvin emphasized or, or pointed out Luke's emphasis of Jesus' innocence. And I think this sort of proverb that Jesus says in verse 31 again alludes to his innocence. He says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is the innocent Son of God, and he's being led away to be executed. How much worse for those who reject who he is and bear their punishment themselves. That's act number one, setting the scene. Any film majors in the house? My people, shout out, Elliot, I love you. Yes. <laughs> Guys, this is Elliot, he's the best. Uh, and I just found out he's a film major, that's awesome. Uh, you know, brother, that a good act two, you introduce some new characters. It helps keep things moving along. And Luke introduces two others who were criminals, were led away with him to be put to death in verse 32. This is sort of an, another way that Luke is going to emphasize Jesus's innocence because, because he says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is call, called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. There are three men, two criminals. Jesus is innocent, and there are two criminals that are crucified with him. And I just read over a little quickly, but we're going to slow down here, because I mentioned this sentence, verse 33, is one of the most significant sentences in the world. There they crucified him. Let's not let the familiarity of this event not let it hit us with its full weight. Can you imagine being one of the first audiences to receive this uh, gospel account? And you've been reading along or hearing it read to you. And even though Jesus has predicted it explicitly, there is something about it that still makes us stop dead in our tracks. It really happened. It really happened. There they crucified him. The hands of the incarnate Christ pierced. Mark 7.32 says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> and they begged him to lay his hands on him. The one whose hands 
touched the sick and the blind and the deaf and the mute and brought healing. As the Christmas hymn says, he came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Jesus reached his hands toward the lepers and was not contaminated with disease, but rather he eradicated both the symptom and the sickness with a touch. Now has the curse of humanity's sin pounded into his hands. The one who said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he took them in the crook of his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now has his arms stretched taut, his hands fastened to the tree. In John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and took in his hands the feet, the dirty feet of his followers and washed them. Now he holds open his hands to wash away the sins of his bride. One more, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says that all things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. The cross is not a passive experience for the word made flesh. On the cross, Jesus is holding into existence the very wood and iron that suspend his body above the ground. Do you see the active compassion of the Savior? He was faithful to the end. Do you see it? Look at verse 34 and see what he says. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he was wrongfully accused, he opened not his mouth. But now that he is being murdered, the first words he speaks are a prayer interceding on behalf of the ones holding the hammers. Jesus looked down at men whose hands were literally covered with his blood and asked his father if their souls might be covered by it too. This is hard for us to understand sometimes. This is because God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. That comes from Isaiah 55 that says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. It's not just that God is transcendent and he's omnipotent and omnipresent and so he is so far above us and complex compared to our simplicity. That's a passage about God's compassion. His mercy is not like our understanding of mercy. In our flesh, we don't get it. We don't want to believe it. 
And in fact, that unbelief is then articulated three different ways. Look, starting in verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, number one, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, number two, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then in 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, number three, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This takes us toward the climax of our story. First, we see that the rulers scoffed. They want him to save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. I want to point out the difference between their accusation of him compared to the soldiers and the criminal. It is fundamentally theological. There is no mistaking that the religious leaders understood who Jesus claimed to be. And that is so important for us to see. This is not just Luke's account of what's happening, but through his testimony, we see that the enemies of Jesus knew perfectly well who Jesus claimed to be. And here they're almost saying, just do one more sign and we'll believe. If you are the Christ of God, if you are our Messiah, just save yourself. But we know that that request is not coming from a place of faith. And other places, John 6 comes to mind, Jesus has addressed that heart that says, look, if you don't believe what I've said or what I've done already, there's no sign that's going to be good for you. This Scoffing gets picked up by the, gen the soldiers, the Gentile soldiers, just thinking what poor, poor shepherds those religious rulers were. You're supposed to help Israel be a light to the nations. But instead we see Gentile soldiers seeing what the religious leaders are saying and adding on their own political national dynamic. These are big, bad Roman soldiers doing a run-of-the-mill execution. There's something dark and visceral about the authority that, that these particular men have been given to carry out what they're doing. And so they're not scared. They say, yeah, if you're the king of the Jews, we can read what's above your head. Save yourself. We'll, we'll call up Caesar. Caesar. We're shaking in our boots. Here, sour wine, a toast to the king of the Jews. Can you imagine the things that Jesus listened to? Luke keeps raising the stakes and he keeps increasing uh, the, the antagonism because we went from scoffing to mocking and now one of the criminals who were hanged rails at him and says, save yourself and us. It's personal for him. <laughs> but, praise the Lord, we have this account that's not in any of the other Gospels. 
there's a rebuke from the other criminal hanging on Jesus' other side. It says, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. A lack of the fear of God will lead you to look on the person and work of Christ with contempt. But when your eyes are opened to see the beauty of the Son of God, the innocent Son of God, slain for us, there is humility. We are exposed to our own need for punishment. He recognizes, I'm getting what I deserved. I have earned my place here. But this man has not. And he said to Jesus, or, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We see here the basics of salvation. This man didn't get to hear all of Christ's teachings in all of his earthly ministry. He doesn't have the theological training that the religious leaders had. He famously was not baptized. I feel like that's often what this passage gets brought up as. See, baptism isn't salvific. Amen. But this passage isn't about baptism. It's about a savior who was seeking and saving the lost down to his final breaths. This brother was saved by grace alone, through faith. An immature, barely able to be articulated, but faith in Christ alone. He calls him Jesus. He knows who he's talking to at the very least. And he says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He has heard what the religious leaders have said. He knows that there is a theological, a, a metaphysical reality that's happening here. This isn't just something that the soldiers are saying, that, that it's a political dynamic. He realizes that there is a kingdom that is beyond this world. And praise the Lord, Jesus, in his goodness, in his compassion, again, not thinking of himself, gives him the assurance that he longs for. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's important that we don't moralize this story. It's not that there is Jesus being crucified between a good guy and a bad guy. These men were God's image bearers, human beings. They had a mother and a father somewhere. Perhaps they were from a lower economic class because of their particular transgressions. But in these two men, 
we see the two paths that lie before all people. These verses are some of the most important verses in this most important book. And what you do with it is some of the most important decisions you will make in your life. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words that were spoken right on time. Thank you for providentially bringing this man a few feet away from his Savior before his life ended. Father, I ask that everyone in here might see the precarious situation that human beings find themselves in as sinners, both by nature and by choice. For those of us who have seen Christ crucified and we have been struck with a fear of the Lord trembling before the cross, asking him to remember us also. I pray that we would go forward from this place in boldness, ready to preach Christ and him crucified to everyone we come in contact with. May we follow our Lord's example, who in these most extreme moments was not asking for strength for himself, but was continuing to pray for others. Lord, what a complex verse where he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's a lot happening there amongst the Trinity that I don't fully understand. But thank you that, at least in part, we see that you answered that prayer in the affirmative, in the man being hung next to Jesus. Thank you that you are the one who opens blind eyes. And now, not just through the incarnate Messiah's hands, but through your Holy Spirit and through your church and through the preaching of the word, I'm asking if you would open blind eyes this morning. Would you be so kind and so merciful We see that you are merciful and your mercy and your kindness is beyond our comprehension. Would you do that this morning for some here who don't yet know you? Would you compel them to not wait and deal with this at a different time? Your word says, call upon the Lord while he is near. Father, we know that you are near today amongst your gathered people. Would you save sinners today? I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.